Hi, this is Dave Vanderveen, and you're listening to the Kick Aspirational Podcast. In the first episode, um, I explained that the Kick Aspirational Project is all about living deliberately and intentionally, sharing value with other people, about breaking through barriers in our own lives and creating the lives we want to live, the lives we want to have, rather than the ones we've inherited or we've been offered by others. And so Kick Aspirational is all about being kick-ass in a positive and inspirational way. Um, this podcast is designed to be interactive. I'd love your questions, comments, feedback. Uh, you can you can reach me via email, david at kickaspirational.com. You can try and leave comments on the wherever you download the podcast. I'll, I'll try and pay attention to those. You can also DM me on Instagram. My Instagram is, uh, we have a Kick Aspirational Instagram. Or you can hit me at uh, david58, D-A-V-E-E-D, 58 on Instagram. <laughs> Maybe I'll explain that that uh, that handle later. And then, uh, or on Facebook under uh, just my name, David Vanderveen. Sometimes those DMs get lost if I'm not actually friends with you, so I apologize if I don't see them. If you've got a pressing question, you're not getting a response, hit me on my email. Um, if you don't know me, I'm an entrepreneur and an adventurer who's been fortunate enough to uh, create a life that allows me to travel the globe. I work with a lot of other business owners uh, in more than 50 countries, and I've built a life uh, developing lifestyle brands that I develop with these business owners wherever I go. Um, if you'd like more background on me, the Kick Aspirational Project, or if you want to connect on social media pages that I have, you can actually just go to davidvanderveen.com, uh, just like my name is spelled, and uh, and you can find all that stuff there, different publications I've done, some TV shows I've done, different things, and, uh, and you can see everything. Um, but I started this podcast because I'm regularly asked to talk about how my partners and I created a global lifestyle brand, the Excess brand, that's empowered people from India and China to Europe, Russia, Central Asia, and the Americas, Southeast Asia, Korea and Japan, among others. People all over the world, literally. Um, how we've helped empower their lives and how we built a brand with them and how we've translated that from a Southern California Laguna Beach brand where I live. Um, into a lifestyle brand that exports that that freedom of a Southern California lifestyle to the rest of the world. Um, and so a regular question I get asked, literally, I've been asked it thousands of times, is how do we do it? And I assume what people really want to know is how they can build the life they want. So that's what Kick Aspirational is about on this podcast. It's about me sharing some of my own stories, failures, maybe a couple successes, um, and, and interacting with the questions that people have. Uh, eventually, I'd like to actually do some workshops and have people bring their own projects and kind of work through um, some of the challenge points that you're at and see if we can break through some of those barriers in your own lives and your own projects and the things that you're working on. I also plan to bring on some friends and people I meet along the way who are at different points in this process. Some who are struggling, some who want to break through and don't know how, some who have broken through, and, uh, and some people who've created really successful lives for themselves. But I think the continuum is really important um, because I think that's where we learn the most. You know, I don't really think we learn that much from success. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's like, well, great, congratulations, here's your prize. Um, I think we learn the most from our failures when we are willing to be honest and dissect those failures. And so I'll spend a lot of time talking about my own failures in life and, um, and how I kind of broke through barriers and, and, and leapfrogged at times. And, and this podcast, this episode, I should have said this at the beginning, this episode is all about who are you? Where do you come from? Who are your people? And I'll talk about some of my own uh, background 
largely so you can understand where I came from and what I had to break through. And hopefully that will help you think about where you came from and the things that empower you, but also the things that you need to, to you know, kind of fix or, or get around or, or, or break through in order to be successful and change and change your life the way you want. Um, love to give a big shout out to Mark Fitzgerald who helped me put this together. He's a friend. I've been on his podcast a couple times. He's a Kiwi from Auckland, New Zealand. And um, he, uh, he pushed me to start this and then he helped me set it up. So I'm a noob. I'm just figuring it all out. But Mark has been a huge uh, uh, guide in helping me get this thing going. So we'll try and bring him on at some point and uh, talk about his own life, the challenges and the things he's been working through, uh, as well as, uh, as some of the breakthroughs that he's had. Um, but when I was explaining in the last podcast the questions I normally get, I read two, of, two uh, messages or notes that I had gotten. One from a college friend, Steve Snezek, who I literally hadn't seen in uh, you know, more than 25 years. Uh, he, he sent it to me on social media, I think. And then uh, the other one was from uh, a young college student, Ethan Cater, who, who sent me a note. And I didn't really answer any of those questions because in the pilot, I was just trying to kind of present what this podcast is all about, lay the foundation. So maybe what I'll do is, is go over this note again that Steve sent me. He said, um, as I look to 2014 and what has led me to this point in my life, I need to make changes that will make a difference for me and my family. So he wrote this a while ago. Not just changes for change's sake or resolutions so I have a box to check. In that vein, I have a weird request and I hope that you have a chance to take a little time and help me with it. Simply put, how do you do it? What is your secret? Is there something in your daily practice that you know has given you an edge? What do you pray about? How do you know when you've got an answer? And what is it? And, and that is the correct answer. What advice would you have for me looking to make something happen in my life? What should I do in the form of a daily routine that will change my fortunes, my luck? My fortunes or my luck, sorry. Um, Steve and I have had a number of interactions over the years around those questions. And, uh, and I shared uh, recently, in fact, I shared, uh, Rob Bell has a great podcast, The Robcast. I shared an interview he did with Mike Lewis uh, on a book that Mike wrote called When to Jump. Mike was an investment banker who jumped to being a semi-pro squash player because that was his goal in life. That was what he, that's the life he wanted. And so I sent that to Steve, thinking it might be helpful. Steve said, hey, I'd love to jump. That's great. But how do I know what to jump to? In fact, um, Steve Snezek got an early review of the first podcast we posted, and he sent me um, a nice note back. And I'd like to read it because I think he raises some more good questions. And then we'll dig into these questions a little bit. I am going to dig into them today. Mainly, um, I'll get into some of the how, but mainly the why, too. Um, he wrote me, he calls me Veen because that was my college nickname you know, from Vanderveen. He goes, Veen, fantastic. I loved it. I'm honored that you chose to use some of my questions in part of our discussion in the podcast. I really liked how you brought together stories of your life and related them to the crucial questions that you've been asked by myself and others. I especially like the dialogue on how we're not all average. I think that the message that there are those that are better than the masses in certain areas and that the rest of us are just masses is too pervasive in our social media culture. The temptation to compare everyday ups and downs in our lives to the glimpses of others ups only on social media leads the masses to feel inferior. That feeling then feeds on itself and becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. He says, the solution in my mind is a combination of inspiration plus practicality. 
This is where I see the value in your podcast. There is tremendous value in inspiring other people to get up off the couch and do something. But then knowing what to do next is the next is the critical next step, and that and the momentum will continue. Um, so it's you know doing something and then continuing to do it. That's what he's saying. Steve had another request in, in, in the note about developing valuable friendships as men. Um, something that he noted has been hard since we were in college. I won't get into that here, but I'll put a pin in it because I think it is valuable and we should talk about that too. Building relationships. Not only who are you, which is what this podcast is about, where do you come from, who are your people, but how do you create relationships, mentorships, coaching, value relationships that will help keep, keep you honest and keep driving you forward and help you through the pinch points. Um, Steve continued, by the way, uh, he said, I, I highly encourage you to keep this podcast going. It is, will bring tremendous value to my life and to others. I really appreciate your friendship, openness, leadership, and willingness to share. Thanks for doing this. Now do more. And then he gave me a little script wink. <laughs> so, you know, told me don't, don't stop, keep going. And so I've been working on this. In fact, I'm back in Southern California. Uh, I just did the first podcast recording when I was in Bangkok in my hotel room. Now I'm back in my office. I'm in Laguna Beach and I uh, was working on this on the way home, a long flight. So it was nice to have something creative like this to work at. Um, but I thought Steve's notes were good because it gives us some questions to talk about today. I'm not sure how much I'm going to get through. I like to keep these episodes to about 30 minutes. I may go over today because uh, there's a lot to unpack here. It's not about the 30 minutes. It's about, I think, getting the right content out. And, um, and I wasn't reading this, these notes because Steve gave me kudos. It's very nice that he did. Thank you, Steve. Um, but I think the, the questions offer a lot, lot of value. And by the way, you know, Steve and I don't work together. Um, I really haven't seen him in about 25 or so years since he got married. And, uh, uh, you know, we did go to college together. We're good friends in college. And it's nice to have things like this that re-engage those relationships from so long ago. So just to, to re, re, restate it, um, I want to restate Steve's original questions and I'll break down um, stories from my own life that hopefully help connect answers. So Steve asked, how, how, how do you do it? What is your secret? Is there something in your daily practice that you know has given you an edge? What do you pray about? How do you know when you've got an answer? What's the correct answer? Or how do you know it's the correct answer if you're praying about it? Um, God doesn't speak to me in my ear out loud audibly. <laughs> I don't get audibles from God. Let me put it that way. Um, I think the way the universe, the muse, the metaphysic, God, whatever you want to call it, the way that I interact with that is by trying a lot of things, opening doors, seeking opportunities, and then... You know, it's hard to explain for me, but it's it's almost like stuff just just a, becomes apparent. Like this is what you need to do, and the funny thing is, it's not always what I want to do, and it's not always the thing I would have planned. Um, and so I'll summarize what Steve's asking: is how questions, what are the mechanics? And I'm happy to explain some of those. Um, I do make a lot of lists. I spend a lot of time developing opportunities and and kicking them around. Um, I network a lot. I have a lot of friends who are creators. Um, not because I'm necessarily looking for something from them, but I love discussing creation and how we do things, how we make things, how we how we create the lives we want. Um, and, I, and I've always kind of, I, I've been that way. I'll, I'll talk about that in this podcast, but I've been that way for, for most of my life. Um, and, and I'm not always trying to make those friends because I'm trying to get something from them. I love to probe and ask questions. I love to learn. I'm dedicated to lifelong learning. I try and have as much empathy as I can. I really, really, you know, 
trying to understand somebody from their point of view, not just waiting for them to stop talking so I can start throwing things at them again. Um, particularly in, in my line of work where I have to try and translate a lifestyle brand into other cultures. I like to say, you know, when, when I'm being translated um, in, in an event, like I was just in Bangkok and, you know, I was being translated into the Thai language, um, I say, you know, I, I, I know what I'm trying to communicate. I have no idea what the audience is hearing. Not only I don't know what the, the, you know, the literal translation is from what I'm saying to what's being said in, in, in a different language, but I don't know how they understand that. Like what's the cultural context that they're hearing it from? Where do they come from? What does that mean to them? And then how do we take the ideas in my head that I'm trying to communicate, the experiences we're trying to build together as a lifestyle brand, and make it compelling for them in their culture in a way that makes sense for who they are. And to get there, you kind of have to know who they are, where they come from, and that's what we're gonna talk about today. So um, before we get into the mechanics in great detail, um, the how, I'd like to talk about the why. Um, because I think if we don't understand what motivates us, what drives us, what's gonna compel us to do stuff when it's not fun, when it's hard, and when it you know kind of sucks, when things are broken, um, we will fail. We will not push through and find the success on the other side. And um, so I guess the questions are, why did I even think I could break out of the structures that I was born into? Uh, the systems designed to both shepherd the masses, shepherd me, um, and limit my individuality. What drove me to be a contrarian, maybe a bit of a rebel or, or a misfit at times? Um, it's, it's something that Pete Holmes talks about in his podcast a lot, that you know he was raised in a conservative Christian home, and he got to a point where he said, I had to move all the furniture out of my room, out of my life, you know, all these ideas that, that I inherited. I had to just move them all out so that I could figure out which ones made sense in the life that I wanted to live, and they could become my own. Um, another great philosopher, these are all friends of mine through Rob Bell, um, Peter Rollins says the same thing. He says, you know, you can't even be a real Christian unless you've been an atheist, uh, you know, because you, if you're just repeating the ideas of somebody else that you were born into, you know, they're really not your ideas. Um, they might be the right ideas, but they might be the wrong ideas too. And in, until you've, you've, you know, had that space away from it in order to really, you know, try and, and, and see it from a new lens, it's hard to say that, that uh, you know, it's the only idea, or it's the right idea, or that you know it's right because why? Because you were born into it and inherited it. Um, you know, that's a, that's not a very convincing argument. Let's just say. So, I want to break down where I came from, um, and and uh, some of the things that helped me, some of the things that made it harder for me, mainly so that hopefully you'll see some things in your life too that you can question and engage in it and 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 wrestle with. You know, um, and for some people, there's a lot of dysfunction in their lives. Uh, I read this book, Hillbilly Elegy, recently that's fantastic about the author who was raised in cycles of grinding poverty with a family that, you know, was highly dysfunctional, made, made regular bad decisions. And a big part of what he had to do was, was literally give his life to the Marines. He had to go to the Marines in order to put discipline and control back into his life so he could build a life he wanted. He needed someone to tell him what bank to put his paycheck in, how he could spend his money, when to show up, when to get up, when to go to bed, you know, because that's where he was. And I'm not saying everyone needs to do that, but I think we all have areas where we need to work and improve in order to break through and do more. 
and we have we have gifts, things that hopefully we're pretty good at, but we also have have things that we were blessed with. And if you're raised in a functional home, you're very lucky. I was fortunate enough to be raised in a highly functional home. I had loving parents who made sure we were well-fed, educated as best we could be. We, we were encouraged to work hard, to save our money, to give back to the church and other causes. My dad literally, even when I was like in grade school and we would earn money, you know, mowing the lawn or doing different things, we kept track of it. I had to present an invoice to my father who would then pay it. And I had to show him how I was keeping 10% set aside for the church and for other, you know, giving that we would do. 45% went into my, my savings account at the bank and 45% I could keep to spend on things that I wanted. And it was a really great way of getting started to put some discipline around money in my life and finances that I didn't always follow perfectly later in life. But as I've gotten older, I've come back to and have been really appreciative that I had that growing up. My parents encouraged my two brothers, three sisters and me, we had six kids, to travel, to try new foods, to attempt art, to play music, and really to develop ourselves, to try a lot of things to figure out what we could be good at and where we wanted to invest our lives. They also raised us to believe that we were created by a God that loves us and that all people, every single human, is a child of that creator and worthy of the same respect as humans and the creation that we inhabit, that, that, that it all deserves respect because it wasn't just made for us to use and abuse. Um, you know, my grandparents were uh, members of the Audubon Society, so they were bird watchers. My grandfather loved to go on nature walks and he would he taught me about, you know, the different trees and which leaves were a part of which tree and which bark and all those kinds of things and and, and for the birds names and the songs they sang and 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 all of that and, and one time I remember I got in a lot of trouble because I shot a, a red-headed woodpecker with a BB gun and um, you know in, in our family what one of the values we had was that that's not what what animals are for they're not just there to be destroyed for your pleasure um, they're there for a purpose, and they deserve to be to be taken care of and to be stewarded, and and so those are some of the values that that I was raised with. Um, I was born in Detroit when my dad was in medical school. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money when I was a kid. We lived in Baltimore, uh, so he was in medical school in Detroit, and then he transferred to Johns Hopkins to finish his specialty. He was a head and neck surgeon. Um, and then we moved to Washington, D.C. because the Vietnam War was going on, and he had to do his time. He had to serve in the Air Force Medical Corps for a couple of years at Andrews Air Force Base. And so growing up in urban settings, you know, most of my friends were different than me. Um, I remember some of my closer friends in Baltimore were Puerto Rican. Um, most of my neighbors and, and closer friends in, in Washington, D.C. were African-American. My godfather is Peruvian. Uh, my, he and my dad met in medical school. Um, so we had a very rich and diverse set of friends growing up that came from all different backgrounds. Um, when we moved to West Michigan, uh, I was in the first grade, and, and we moved back to West Michigan because that's where my dad was from. His family's, uh, uh, both my parents, uh, their families are Dutch immigrants, so on both sides. My dad's family is from West Michigan, where there's a large enclave or community of Dutch immigrants. There's cities like Holland, Michigan, um, in that area where I went to high school. And so, you know, we went from a very multicultural environment to living in one where everyone was the same skin color, or at least most of the people we associated with were uh, blonde hair, blue eyed, went to the same church, because in our uh, background, you know, there's a thing called the Dutch Christian Reformed Church even. So our ethnicity was tied up with our re religion and, and our associations, our clubs, all those, all those sorts of things. 
And I went from being, uh, you know, come from a diverse background to all of a sudden a very homogeneous background. And, um, and so in a way it was refreshing to meet my people, <laughs> as it were. Um, and we moved into, you know, uh, my dad started a private practice. So we moved into a house on a lake and, and started to have, you know, nicer things. Uh, we weren't just poor medical students anymore. The problem was, is that I wasn't born there and I didn't really feel like I fit in there. I was an East Coast kid with a fairly cosmopolitan background. And, um, and then we moved back into this community where it's quite parochial. Um, you know, th there was this whole system of Dutch Christian reform schools, churches, and clubs. Like, we didn't even have Boy Scouts. We had cadets. <laughs> you know, the, the Dutch Christian reformed um, Boy Scout program. And, and even though I wasn't that old... We had traveled enough at that point in my life um, and had had enough interactions and friendships with people from a wide variety of backgrounds and faith traditions that I, that, I, that I questioned a lot of the assumptions that I heard from an ethnic community with a rigorous social, political, and religious structure. The good part of it was that we were well-educated in the history of our people. So growing up in that community, you read the Bible, which, you know, frankly, is the great meta-narrative. It's the foundation of all Western literature. Um, by the way, that's not me saying that. Reed College, which is an agnostic, great school. It's where Steve Jobs went briefly. Agnostic uh, College, you know, up in Oregon, um, says this in their Humanities 101 course. You know, we're going to read great swaths of the Bible, not because we want you to become religious, but because this, this story is the great story that all great stories in Western literature are built on. It's the great meta-narrative. Um, so we read a lot of the, of the, you know, we got to know the Bible fairly well. Um, we got to understand the Protestant Revolution and the history of, of the faith tradition that we came from in a way that encouraged questions and debates uh, to an extent, right, <laughs> um, within the tradition. And, and, you know, recently when, when my kids were younger and we were reading some of the Harry Potter books and watching the movies, Dumbledore said this thing, I think it was in the Chamber of Secrets book, where the kids have found this, this book that gives them these secret answers they're not supposed to have and then also lures them into great danger. Dumbledore finally says to the kids, you know, in the wizard school, um, after, you know, he discovers what's going on, he said, look, you've got to be careful. Don't use magic if you don't know its source. And so what I'm trying to get to, the reason I'm telling you all of this, is I'm trying to unpack a little bit of my background and where I come from and the things that form me. Um, so hopefully you can understand me a little bit, you know, how do we do it, but, but also why I was motivated to break through some of these barriers, why I was motivated to you know, to be a contrarian, because I just didn't feel like I fit in that much. I mean, I had the right skin tones, and I had the right last name, but I wasn't from there. And so even though I could understand why people were parochial, and I could understand why if, if you were only raised in this little community, and you didn't live, you know, move outside that very much, you might have, you know, more... Uh, I would say smaller ideas about how big the world could be, or how big truth could be, or how, how truth could progress. Um, you know, I didn't buy into all of it, I'll just say. Um, I liked it, I enjoyed learning it, and I, and I appreciate it now. And I've learned to really appreciate that upbringing now. But I wasn't just buying in, you know, I wasn't just drinking the Kool-Aid, let's just say. So um, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think that ideas apply, um, the, the idea that applies in, in my early life was the way, you know, what am I trying to say here? The way we were given the history of our ideas and our culture um, and the way we were, we were allowed to challenge it um, was, was healthy and it was good because, 
you know, we still remembered when our families immigrated. I still, I grew up with stories about my grandparents and my great-grandparents coming over from the Netherlands and that they could come here and create a new world, a new life for themselves through great hardship and struggle, but that, that, that they could make it happen. And within a few generations, um, you know, people were very successful because of the discipline they had put into their own life. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, my, my parents were, were born in the 1940s and, and they were progressive for their generation of Dutch Americans, but you know, each generation moves on. And so they would only help us pay for college if we went to a Christian college and would only allow us to go to a Christian school in West Michigan for, for you know, for education, um, for you know, grade school, middle school, high school, and, and, and university. And I was kind of suffocating at one point in high school um, in Holland, Michigan, at Holland Christian High School, uh, where I'm pretty sure you could get a varsity letter in clomping dancing, in Dutch dance, um, you know, Dutch dancing with wooden shoes during tulip time. That's how, that's how parochial of an environment it was. Um, and, and I just couldn't take it anymore. And so I, when I was looking to go to college and, you know, I was applying to colleges, you know, my dad was really clear. I wanted to go to UCLA. I thought that'd be a great experience. And he said, you know, look, we're, we're only going to pay for Christian schools. And, um, and I had to earn, you know, my own room and board and book money and things like that too. But they were, they were very helpful. They paid for quite a bit of our, our education. So I kind of had to focus on Christian schools that, uh, that they would pay for. And the furthest one away, Wheaton College, was one that I both got into and was near Chicago. So it was near a big city that wasn't West Michigan. So that's where I decided to go. Um, the problem was uh, I didn't really know what I was getting into. Wheaton is a very conservative Christian college. It had a great academic uh, uh, reputation at the time, maybe among the best of the Christian colleges, but um, man, really conservative. And my freshman year, um, I just remember thinking, you know what? I'll be going to a school that isn't all the kids I went to high school with. It's not a bunch of Dutch Americans. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but I wanted something fresh and new and different. And I'll be near a big city. I can always get into Chicago if, if I, if I, you know, if, it's, if the community there isn't exactly what I'm looking for. So I went to Wheaton, and uh, my freshman year, I met someone who utterly transformed my ideas about what was possible, where the boundaries were for what I could do with my life. And this person's name was Bronk. <laughs> Bronk was a senior when I was a freshman. I don't really recall exactly how I met him. Um, he was the soccer team manager, and I played soccer that year, so it may have been through teammates. But Bronk was, he was tall. He was about 6'4", pretty lanky, and he was a feat. So he had, you know, kind of... Um, yeah, he had that kind of, you know, uh, you know, he spoke with, with an effete tone. And I don't know exactly how he got his nickname, but I'm guessing it's because he was a big dude and he was not, you know, the most masculine. And so he was also hilariously creative and, and people just loved him. He was, he was tons of fun. Um, what I learned kind of quickly was that Bronk would throw parties or host talent show banquets and, and create parades all in his own honor, and, and he would do it ironically. They were super fun, and, and everybody talked about kind of whatever he was doing next. Bronk even created a fake wedding in his senior year with a female student that was held in the center of the campus outside and presided over by our chaplain. Um, the bride was actually given away by the president of our school, and everyone wanted in on what Bronk was doing. I also, um, I was in the, I somehow was a, one of the groomsmen in the, in the wedding. And uh, I was almost kicked out at the end of my freshman year because at the wedding reception, which was in downtown Chicago, 
um, we were drinking and we weren't supposed to be doing that at Wheaton. So anyways, I don't recall exactly where we were. I think it may have been at the reception, but I asked Bronco a question. I asked him, how do you do it? How do you like put these parties on? Or how do you, how'd you put this wedding together? How do you, how do you throw a parade? Um, and how do you get everyone to participate? And he gave me this great advice. He said, I wake up in the morning and I decide what I want to do. And then, then I just do it and get people to help me because, because why wouldn't they? Whatever we're going to do next is better than the other options they had from the college, so why wouldn't they help me? And the kernel of that idea is what kind of moved me to start attempting things, to put myself out there and to make it fun for my friends to engage in social, political, and philosophical projects with me, more fun than not participating. Um, it came down to deciding that we could throw out the rule book, the cultural expectations, and make the world that we wanted to live in. I was suffocating in the world that I'd been born into. It wasn't my parents' fault. It wasn't the community's fault. It just wasn't big enough for what I'd already seen. And so when I went to a place that fortunately was, you know, more cosmopolitan, but, but it was still really confined by the, by the rules and regulations of the school, what Bronx showed me was you don't have to accept what they're offering you. You can actually decide to create your own rule book. Wheaton had a student statement of responsibilities that we had to sign. It said that we wouldn't drink, dance, smoke, gamble, or fornicate. Um, not a great list of don'ts for a college student like me. <laughs> it was a contract, a document that was called the Pledge and was created to form expectations for our school community. So my friends and I decided to start our own community inside that community, a secret society called the Church of Reason. It kind of satirized the emphasis that the Protestant Revolution put on rationalism. And we created a document, a contract that we all signed, which superseded the pledge as a new pledge. Um, and that pledge said that we would break the old pledge on a regular basis. We just took rationalism to its ultimate height and said, well, this pledge we had to sign doesn't say that it supersedes all other pledges. So if we create a pledge that we say supersedes it, and we agree to it as a community within the community, then doesn't that work? Uh, of course, we didn't advertise to the administration that we had done that, but that's, that was our justification. Um, because as I found in life, you can rationalize almost anything. So we threw parties, ran candidates in school elections. I was an editor on the official school paper and running school entertainment as the director of recreation by, by, uh, by my third year uh, for the school's student union. Uh, called, the, yeah, the, called the College Union. Um, but then we were also organizing our own secret society, supporting and contributing to an underground newspaper. And uh, playing, I was playing bass in a punk band called Dungus Mongelanus. Don't ask the, about the name. Um, so coming from a background where I had enough discipline and education to do the work and being in a place, a college, where many of my friends were itching to do something and the school put so many limits on us that we had to be creative, it allowed us to start trying things. Bronk showed me that I didn't have to follow convention, that maybe the boring conventions that a conservative Christian school put on college students maybe made it easier and more compelling to question it, to challenge it, and to break through. I ultimately, and probably not surprisingly, got kicked out of Wheaton at the end of my third year for a poem in the underground newspaper. The publication, the newspaper, was called The Ice Cream Socialist. Um, one of Wheaton's regular college entertainments were ice cream socials, um, as if maybe we were still living in the 1950s, you know, uh, just weird. And my poem had a lot of surfing imagery in it that was very sexual. So it was kind of, you know, like a double entendre, but the school didn't really care for that. 
When I was called in to meet with the Dean of Men, the Dean of Women, and the Vice President of Student Development, they started off by telling me I had two choices, expulsion or to withdraw. They read through a large file of suspected infractions that they had kept on me over the three years I was there, but they had never been able to catch me at any of them. And they literally told me that I was too slick and slippery to discuss any of this. So it was just those two choices, expulsion or withdrawal, and it was officially because of my poem. Now, our, our school paper had been covering the fact that students involved with this underground paper, the editors were being called in and suspended. And I, I wasn't an editor of the paper, I was just a contributor. Um, I was the last one called in, and, and I was called in for my poetry, and this was known at the school, and it was written about in the school paper. Um, so a Chicago Tribune reporter actually had been following the story and called me and asked if I knew it was going to happen to me. Um, you know, First Amendment rights are really important for newspapers. <laughs> so they were pretty interested, pretty keen on this. I said I'd call back after my meeting with the deans. And when I told the deans and the vice president in that meeting that I would have to call the Tribune reporter back and let them know that a liberal arts college was kicking out a student for poetry, the vice president of student development laughed at me and said that no one would care. And, and he might have been right. Um, but what he didn't know was what we were going to do next. <laughs> and that was, frankly, a very um, an, an incredibly scary moment for me. I, I chuckle about it now, but at the time I was freaking out inside. I mean, it's like that shock you get where you just feel cold inside and you don't know what to do next. And what I've what I've kind of learned through those points when I when I get that fear is that you have to you have to just do something. You have to act. You have to move through it. Otherwise, the field will consume you and freeze you and stop you. Um, I knew my parents would be upset. I was a semester away from graduating with two majors. I was going to graduate early. I was trying to get uh, two internships in Washington, D.C. that summer, one for a congressman, one for a think tank. And there I was. I was getting kicked out of my school for a poem. <laughs> so when I walked out of the student development office freaking out, I made a decision that I'd tell the story that I wanted to be told and create the reality that I wanted the world to hear not the version that the school wanted to tell about me. Unfortunately, I had some great friends, and we were well-organized, who were also upset about the administration, that they were using a poem to expel me. And so to fight back, um, we, uh, we made press releases, called the media, created signs, organized a protest, and a press conference, and the media showed up. Um, the school decided to host their own press conference at the Billy Graham Center, a large, steepled building, uh, at, at, with a media center in it on the edge of campus. So we took our protest into that event. We actually just literally walked in and took over their news conference. And when I walked in with the protesting students, of course, all the cameras turned to us. And then our narrative became the narrative that people focused on. You can Google um, this in the Chicago Tribune or the New York Times. Um, it all happened in the spring of 1990 in Wheaton, Illinois. My parents found out from a friend watching a Cubs game and seeing me on the news and wanted to get me out of there. But I actually put my foot down and said that I couldn't leave until the media portion of my leaving school, of me telling my story, was over. Because I'd had my own scandal, because I did all this and we created our own story, um, Susie Garment at the American Enterprise Institute, the think tank where I wanted to get the, uh, the internship, AEI, she hired me to intern for her and help with, uh, with fact-checking a book on political scandal she was working on. I also got the internship for Fred Upton, at that time a junior congressman uh, in the U.S. Congress. He's very senior now because my grades were good. And I was quickly accepted at a sister school to Wheaton at Calvin College, um, although <laughs> I, I had good grades, so they accepted me right away, and it was a sister school. But then 
through this throughout the summer they f- they found out you know that I'd kind of been kicked out even though I technically withdrew and so I had to go on social probation my first semester but you know I got through Calvin in a year and it worked out well um, I graduated a year later from Calvin with degrees in philosophy and political science um, and and graduated into a terrible recession in 1991 so again you know I got out of one frying pan um, but then you know ended up in the fire of, of, of a great recession in 1991 and um, you know no one was hiring philosophers, so so a friend's mom told uh, my friend Mark and I. Uh, her, his mom told us about jobs teaching English in Japan that paid well. You just needed a college degree, and you needed to get to Japan. <laughs> so I went. Um, I borrowed some money from my parents for a plane ticket, and had enough to get started, enough money in the bank to get started, and moved to Tokyo. It was very expensive, um, but you know I scrimped and saved. And when I landed, I didn't know anyone there. I just found a youth hostel, uh, got a cheap bed in a youth hostel, and then um, quickly met some other non-Japanese young people and started interviewing for jobs via the the English newspaper. Um, that was that was how I did it, and uh, and living in Japan was was a really great experience. It was kind of a mini immigrant experience. Um, I stayed for less than a year, basically until I got a job opportunity at a small think tank back in West Michigan, um, the Acton Institute. I was their first director of public affairs. It turns out my newspaper editing in college, um, my media training leaving college, and then the work I had done as an intern in, in uh, you know, for a congressman and for another think tank helped me get that job. Um, and when I was at Calvin, I did volunteer for the Acton Institute when they were just getting started. So, you know, I, I, I gave my time and volunteered and created value in order to get, you know, value back there. Um, but uh, but but that was how I got started, you know, and it kind of left this indelible impression on me working in Japan that, you know, it's possible to leave the place you were born, to leave the country that you come from, to to find work, to make a living. I'd earned and saved enough teaching English and editing daily news services when I was living there to pay my parents back and have a small nest egg when I returned. And that I didn't have to let an American recession define who I was and what I could do, that I could create my own opportunities. Um, and when I got back, this was kind of funny, it was, uh, I got a similar question. I, when I got back, I was renting a room in a house with friends from Calvin College, and some of whom I'd, I'd gone to high school with in Holland, Michigan. And one of my friends asked me the same question that Steve Snezik did, but much earlier, he asked me about how I moved to Japan. He, he said, how'd you do it? And you know, I was a little confused by the question. I didn't understand how lucky I was to have my parents, to have the benefit of living and traveling around the USA, to have studied abroad in Europe and in Israel before I had done that. So I was kind of comfortable, you know, getting out and about. There were things I'd taken for granted. I said to him, what do you mean? I, I borrowed some money and bought a plane ticket and went. And he said, I just don't, he, he said to me, I just don't think I could do that. I don't think I could make that leap. And so, and so what I've come to learn, and this is why I think it's important to unpack who we are and and what we can do and what we don't think we can do in order to actually address those things um, is that when somebody asks how I did something, it can be a loaded question and that maybe my answer can be loaded with a lot of assumptions too. I mean, how do you, how you borrow money from your parents or buy a plane ticket or find job listings isn't that interesting. That stuff's pretty matter of fact. I, I did get help from some friends in Grand Rapids to move to Japan and do the same things I'm sorry, I, I did help some of my friends in Grand Rapids um, later move to Japan, going through the mechanics of it, and get jobs there. 
until the Japanese bubble burst. And they had a great time. But why you would do it, I think, is a bigger question. Why would you move to Japan? Why would you choose to, or, or not move to Japan? Why would you choose to make a life someplace else? Um, and, and, and that's really what you need to understand first. Why are you doing these things? Because that is that will create the values that you have that will, that will affect the decisions you make that, that will start to define who you are. Um, and so you have to understand who you are in order to understand why you want to do what you want to do. And then you need to start making lists. Um, <laughs> what do you want? Start making lists. Start digging through opportunities. Start thinking about the wide range of opportunities and actually write it down. Don't just have ideas floating around in your head. What do you want out of life? Write it down. Don't be afraid of how ridiculous or absurd or I can't do that. I couldn't possibly. Just what do you want? Just write it down. Put it on a piece of paper. Um, you know, sometimes we define what we want and why we want it in reaction against our inherited identity. And, and that's not a bad place to start. Maybe it's out of rebellion. It's out of reaction. Um, I think it's important to eventually learn to respect wherever we come from and appreciate what the community was trying to offer. That's part of empathy. And then start the real work of defining our lives by what we want, not by what we don't want. Um, I went to college to get away and to learn to think for myself. I studied, I got a liberal arts degree and I majored in philosophy and political science. I discovered how I could create a better world for myself than what I was being offered through my friend Bronk. And then, and then you know, made that idea my own after I kind of understood it from him and saw what he was doing. It ended up getting me kicked out of that community because the reality was what I was building didn't fit in there. Um, that failure, getting kicked out of college, was a launching pad for getting the internships I wanted. I didn't know it at the time, but it allowed me to leapfrog. It allowed me to get someplace I probably couldn't have gotten without that. And, and that gave me enough of a resume to get higher paying editing jobs in Japan and an offer back in the US to do public affairs work. Uh, but you know, here we go again. I, I, after a year of working at Acton, this small think tank, I started thinking that working in think tanks on the administrative side wasn't exactly what I wanted to do with my life either. I kept making these lists like, is this what you want? Is this where you want to be? Where does this take you? How does this scale? Um, and it, it did give me access, though, to some really interesting donors and successful people in life, some of whom were successful entrepreneurs. One of them, Howie Rich, who was very successful in New York real estate, um, but was very interested in, in kind of free market or libertarian ideas. Uh, our, our think tank, the Acton Institute, was all about um, the values behind a free society um, and, and even teaching free market economics, you know, the, the, the economics of free choices to religious people. <laughs> kind of an interesting idea. And they've actually grown and been very successful since then. Um, but so Howie Rich gave me the opportunity to start my own business a small public affairs company that I basically just started as a DBA, a doing business as, on my own social security, um, my own social security number. And this may be new information to some people, but you don't. Ha starting a company doesn't have to be complicated. Um, you can use your social security number to start a, an official business. You can just say, "Hey, I'm my person." You know, by the way, co corporations are people. My person is now a company. It's David Vanderveen, or it's Vanderveen Public Affairs, and. Um, and then you just you just keep track of your business expenses, your official business expenses, and you write them off under your Section C, on your on your on your um, tax forms that you submit every year, your your income tax statements. So you can literally submit, you can actually submit your expenses and just deduct them from your income, and 
you know, I started doing that in my early 20s. My dad said, I'm, you're not on my taxes anymore. You need to start a business so that, you know, you can take advantage of, of the benefits of the tax code. Um, and, uh, you know, this is legal in the United States. It doesn't cost anything, and, um, and it gives you a way to actually write off some of your expenses, your legitimate expenses. My company was basically me. It was Vanderveen Public Affairs. I was 22 years old when I went to work as a contractor uh, for the political movement that was designed to limit how long legislators can be in office. It was called the Term Limits Movement, and it was the early 1990s. So that's how I started my first official full-time business. <laughs> I didn't know all the reasons why yet. I just knew that what I was being offered um, at Acton was, was very nice. It was kind. It was good. I enjoyed working with the people there, but it wasn't exactly what I wanted. And I needed to progress. I needed to explore. I needed to try some new things, scare myself a little bit, and get out into the world. And so that's how I got started. Um, so that, I think, is, uh, is, is where we'll kind of wrap it up today on this podcast. That's my background. That's my story. What's yours? Where do you come from? Who are your people? Was your family functional? Was it dysfunctional? What things do you have to overcome? And what are the opportunities that you have, the disciplines that you were raised with, that will allow you the values that will allow you to break through? Write that down. Think about it. Share it with me if you'd like. I, I would love to hear from you um, if you have questions or if you're working through it and you're not sure or, or if you just want to share where you're at and what you're working on. Um, and so please feel free to send it to me. Uh, you know, David at kickaspirational.com at the Kick Aspirational Instagram site. Um, wh wherever you'd like to try and hit me up on social, I will try and find your, 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 um, your messages and respond. But I'd also like to use them on the show and hopefully um, bring some of you on to talk about it because I think that's where we're going to get some breakthroughs together and hopefully make a difference in our own lives. Thank you for joining me at Kick Aspirational again. And I uh, went over my 30-minute uh, guideline. We're in 45 minutes here, but uh, we'll try and keep the next one a little more brief. Thanks.